Welcome to another edition of the Marketing Science Podcast, the podcast for sales and marketing professionals working within science, engineering, and healthcare. Don't forget to hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you usually listen to your podcasts. My name is Frank Barker, the head of marketing at Azo Network, where you can also subscribe. And I'm joined by not just one, but two guests this week, Dr. Ian Birkby, the CEO of Azo Network, and Alex Cairns, MD of Move Marketing a full-service B2B marketing agency. Thanks, gents, for joining us. How are we doing today? Pleasure. Great to be here, Frankie. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks. Brilliant. So without further ado, I'd like to jump straight into the first question. And we're actually going to draw on, on Ian, your experience of being in the notable position of predating the digital era. <laughs> How have you seen the marketing strategy for, uh, for SMEs has changed or has evolved over the course of that period? Despite the fact that you're indicating that my working career started in the era of horses and carts, Frankie, I, uh, I will give you uh, uh, my uh, best position on that. Uh, I think the, the key thing in terms of how it's, it's changed since, well, 95 when Netscape came out and the internet era started is the ability to measure uh, what you're achieving with your marketing efforts. So in the digital age, it is relatively easy to measure the impact of your various campaigns and from that to calculate the return on your marketing investment. Uh, now, I'd counter that by saying we're possibly getting to the stage where some people like to measure too many things and are starting to get lost a little bit in the numbers. But for me, it's the ability to quantify uh, the performance of your campaigns. Okay, excellent. Alex, you've, you've come from a, well, you're in a full service B2B marketing agency, having worked both client and agency side and for lots of multinationals. So you've got a real mix of experience. Yeah. How have you seen the transition? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd echo a lot of what Ian says. I think um, data on two aspects, though, because we, we use a lot of data for market analysis, and market research at the planning phase as well. So not just the campaign data, which is undoubtedly invaluable, but um, also the research um, phase for the data in terms, of, in terms of putting together marketing plans that give you a sort of one to three to five year focus. Um, the other, I think the other big change since sort of the year 2000 or so, which is actually when, when I just jumped into my marketing career as well, is that this, uh, we've now got a plethora of channels. So it's not just data, it's a plethora of digital channels which we can actually pick and choose from and mix and match according to according to requirements. So there's a lot more to um, a lot more to test us these days, I think. Yeah. Okay. And having worked with lots of different uh, clients for your agency, what's the biggest challenge or what's the most common or the greatest challenges that you see that your clients are having from from a marketing perspective? I think um, I think it's it is that data interpretation and insight because it, it is a fantastic thing having all the data, but um, it's not a given to know how to use it and to know how to actually spin it into a, a, an achievable marketing plan or an achievable set of objectives and actions to take. So often that that's where we get involved. We try and give them a little bit of. Um, advice obviously and, and ex the, the depth of our experience and expertise and how to use and interpret that data across multiple channels but a lot of the particularly in kind of science and industrial sectors um it isn't their core specialism understanding marketing data and statistics is obviously not their core specialism so that's where we get involved to uh, to help them out really 
Excellent. And Ian, uh, so using data and statistics as marketing challenges, would you echo that or anything you'd add? Uh, absolutely. I think, you know, from our perspective as a, as a business, we've invested heavily in building a, an analytics platform over the last six or seven years. Um, prior to that, we would say to our clients, we've driven several thousand visitors to your site um, and they'd say, great, thanks very much, but they couldn't attribute those visitors to specific actions in terms of product sales and, uh, and market sector activity. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, if you can use that data to genuinely prove uh, ROI, it's, uh, it's a massive plus point. Brilliant, yeah. All the way from campaign, uh, original source campaign, all the way to revenue-generating opportunity. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I mean, as, as you well know, we quite often get into this uh, discussion about, you know, was it the last touch that really made the difference? And if you're on the sales side of life, you're probably going to say it was your involvement there. Um, or was it actually that first uh, campaign, that first email campaign that was marketing's responsibility? So, uh, yeah, uh, always an interesting debate, that one, Frankie, as you well know. <laughs> yeah, well, we've not, well, let's not get stuck into aligning sales and marketing just yet. That's a whole podcast on itself. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. So, what, um, next question. What in which ways do uh, B2C, uh, does that vary to B2B and sort of specifically reaching scientists and engineers? How, how have you found that's different? Yeah, I think it's just uh, with B2B, certainly it's a lot more, the applications, the, the markets are a lot more niche, they're a lot more difficult to, to pinpoint and find a way through to. So I've, you know, as I say, spent kind of 20 years trying to hone that, hone that as a, as a science really in terms of the approach. And it's, um, it's really trying to appeal to the, the types of individuals and, and job titles that you've got within scientific and industrial sectors. So everything that um, enhances credibility or proof, of, um, proof that a product or service works, uh, so whether that be case studies, white papers, um, anything that's credibility building on that side is, is usually a better way to go. And it's that, but that is much more, a much more different approach from B2C where you can really just pick up on a fad or a craze that's going on and, um, and run a campaign on the back of that. That's a little bit less considered and a little bit less, um, actually less scientific in terms of the approach to it as well. So, I think maybe just to add to that one, Frankie, I think the other factor is with, uh, with B2B is quite often the, uh, the, the price points are significantly bigger and the sales cycle is significantly longer. So to a certain extent, if you're in the business of content marketing, you need to be writing content that satisfies all stages of the, the buyer's journey. Whereas in B2C, you know, if you've got a, you know, a £10 product, you can put an ad out on Instagram and you can probably sell it the same day. Whereas for a lot of our customers, the sales cycle can be six to nine months and more involved. Yeah, okay. So on that, what's, what's the longest sales cycle or longest time you've seen uh, for a sale from initial point to close? Uh, if I go back to my manufacturing days, uh, I was involved in a business that made advanced ceramics. Uh, you could be talking to a client for nine months before you get the specifications correct. You've done some testing, uh, that type of thing. So uh, yeah, I, I don't think for a lot of our clients, if you're selling a million dollars worth of kit, you know, a year's worth of discussion is not unusual, I would imagine. Yeah, I think we found, well, we, we ran a survey. I remember presenting this the other day, actually, at PitCon. It was uh, 51% of marketing managers have got a, set, a sales cycle of a, between three to 12 months. Right. And there's quite a, very few have got less than three months and then quite considerably more than that have got more than 12 months. So, Okay, so 
Uh, what are the key questions that an SME science or engineering company should be asking when it comes to strategic planning? Alex, I'm going to ask you that. Yeah, I think um, a few on this one. We, we, we typically take a sort of five-step approach in terms of how we walk um, walk a client through the, the planning process for that. So always starting with what they're actually trying to achieve in the first place. That's the most, most fundamental thing in terms of what they're looking to get out of the process. Um, then taking a look at um, market analysis, researching what, what's actually going on in the market, understanding and getting a getting a feel for what's going on in the market, um, understanding competitors, what their positioning statements are, what their marketing techniques they're using are, getting a full kind of feel for how they're stacking themselves up in the in the marketplace. Um, Figuring out value proposition and message uh, sounds like an obvious one, that, but you'd be surprised how many 20, 30, 40 million pound plus turnover companies that, that I walk into that really haven't got that value proposition nailed down to a paragraph or a couple of key phrases. So we, we see it time and time again. We, we help them kind of orientate to, to get to the start line with that. And then the fifth one is a little bit more involved, actually. So it's really um, pulling all that together through the available channels, um, budget and timescales, and also setting kind of smart smart objectives to sit alongside all that. That would be our typical approach that we'd walk through. Excellent. Yeah, I know you've done some great work uh, helping us with our own strategic planning as well. So thank you there. Sure, no problem. Um, also, right, so next question. Uh, how has the internet level the playing field for David versus Goliath over, over the last 20 years? Uh, I think I, I mean, I got into this game, I uh, uh, set up Azor Network in early 2000 and uh, the world was very, very different uh, then. But certainly one of the things that I saw was that, you know, on the internet, uh, you've got the same amount of screen space as a billion dollar market cap company. So uh, one of the phrases that I adopted fairly early on was, uh, it doesn't matter where you're found on the internet, it just matters that you are found. So uh, I think, you know, it became much easier as a small business to to make a significant impact via the web uh, than it had done previously, where, you know, previously, you know, you probably did need bigger budgets if you were going to go into print media, if you were going to do big exhibition uh, rollouts and that type of stuff. So, uh, you know, good news travels pretty quick on the internet and that's an advantage to smaller businesses. Um, brilliant. All right. So moving on, um, the next question about sort of risk and about trying trying things out because, we're, you know, we're in a very, very fast evolving digital industry. Uh, what do you find is the appetite for risk in, in marketing, specifically from the sort of C-suite and, and what, what, you know, how are people being given license to try things? I think it's, um, look, in these industrial scientific sectors that we're sort of concentrating on here, it, it's, it's low, to be brutally honest. So that, that's my experience. And I think it, I don't just say that as, a, as an agency owner on this side of the fence now. I think when I was client side, running very big kind of blue chip marketing budgets um, for some big international companies, it was still quite low even 10, 15 years ago as well. That's why strategic planning is so important from my perspective. It's, uh, it gives some validation. It gives validation that um, a C-suite, uh, a board of, of directors can actually sign off on and say, okay, we, we can see the analysis, we can see the data. That, you know, with that in mind, we'll, we'll give some investment for that. But 
Whereas perhaps without any kind of analysis or just kind of an off-the-cuff approach, um, they're not going to release that, those kind of budgets really. So uh, overall, though, I would definitely say low, low appetite, for, appetite for risk in these sectors. Yeah. Ian, do, do you find that? Do you, do you see lots of, of companies using the data to justify the marketing spend or is it still a bit more gut feely? Uh, I, I think it's becoming increasingly data focused. I, uh, I think there's, you know, there's some still some dumb comments that come out like, uh, oh, why are you going to this particular uh, exhibition? Well, because our competitors are there. You know, does that really justify that, that activity? Uh, I also think that, uh, you know, we're in an age where Obviously, Google AdWords has worked. And as part of your marketing mix, spending on Google, I'd be a fool to sit here and say it doesn't work. It it obviously does. However, one of the things that we see is that uh, people set up AdWords campaigns, and it was 18 months ago when it was Jack who's in the IT department, and they just set and forget. And they don't realize that they're actually now wasting 50% of the budget on on keywords that are not delivering for them. So I think there's there's a lot of slack often in the in the marketing activity but we really need to start to uh, or businesses like i do uh, need to start to recognize that marketing is a value creator it's not a cost center and that's the sort of the old-fashioned attitude that we need to move away from i think excellent all right so moving on from that and very much data-driven uh, what specific KPIs would you use um, in, a, in a business context? What's what's important to you uh, from a marketing standpoint? I think I'd perhaps differ a little bit from Alex hearing that I'm going to focus on, on sort of the business KPIs and say, well, you know, what are the business KPIs and then how does marketing fit into that? So uh, again, I think when you're running a business and you're building a business, uh, keep it as simple as possible. You know, when businesses start to go wrong, it's when people start to overcomplicate things. So make sure you've got a product that people want to buy. Make sure you've got enough cash in the bank uh, to uh, to facilitate that activity. And we're big fans of, of using a balanced scorecard approach. So you can actually see, you know, the financial performance, your customer performance, uh, various other factors. We use a, a Trello approach. We open that up to everybody in the business so everybody's got visibility on how much cash do we have in the bank now, how much do we think we're going to have in six months, uh, what's it actually costing us to acquire a customer, that sort of data. So you get everybody involved in that. And obviously marketing feeds into that uh, in terms of you know how many customers do we currently have, how are we growing those customers, what's the churn rate on those customers, those sort of factors. So for me, it starts with the, the top-down approach of business first and then how does marketing fit into that. Excellent. Alex, any, any marketing-specific KPIs that you'd be encouraging your clients to... Yeah, I think I think that's it. I think we take a slightly different approach for sure in terms of we're, we're trying to give them a, a bit of a yardstick and a benchmark to how they're, they're running their marketing budget. So really it's 50-50. Um, I'd say half of what we put in place with our clients is related to sales or profit or um, could be overall sales or sales of a certain product line particularly if it's a product launch or something like that. It could be overall profit. Um, Distribution versus direct sales is another one in terms of the the types of products and uh, services that our clients tend to be be selling in these sectors. And then the other 50% is the the raw marketing um, KPIs, so stuff like that. That will vary a lot. So we'll typically have... um, a list of say six to ten channels that we'll work on for clients and so it'll be 
different for every one of those and we'll have different yardsticks for each one of those. But as a, as a, a kind of example of the two ends of the spectrum a little bit, for something like a trade show, for example, it would typically, typically be quite a high cost uh, in terms of uh, conversion of that, that, in, that lead into a sale against something like, say, an email or a webinar or even a bit of social content that's put out there. So there are like definitely very different ends of the spectrum in terms of how we, how we pitch those, uh, those KPIs for them. Okay, excellent. Um, moving on. So changing tack now slightly. As marketers, we, you know, we use lots of different software, lots of different software in our marketing stack, MarTech stack. What piece of software or which piece of software could you not live without? And at the risk of being slightly biased, I would say for me, it would be the uh, Azo Intel analytics platform that we've built and developed over the last six or seven years. Uh, uh, we also have built, rather than bought, uh, our content management system, our email distribution, and that whole platform that we now exist upon, uh, which is our own IP, that's uh, that's the piece of uh, software that I couldn't really do without. And within that, I think the uh, the ability to see who's engaging with content, their content journey, how they're engaging with that content, uh, that's been the bedrock of the growth of our business over that period of time. I think all of the other aspects, you know, SQL Server, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Adobe suite that you may use, you can pretty much replace those with other solutions. So uh, it, it's a very personal answer, and I apologise for the immediate commercial plug on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're excused. Uh, no, for, I mean, for me personally, uh, I'll, I'll give my two, two, 10p. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's got to be the how that how the software interacts with each other because it, it you know with small marketing departments, um, as soon as you can automate certain tasks that you know lead scoring for instance and lead distribution amongst your sales team, it just it frees up your morning. Yeah, because uh, rather than having to get in and then there's a backlog of stuff that needs doing and and distributing, it was the way that you know having grown up using Salesforce and we've managed to get Azure Intel talking to Salesforce, we can just get it like that and it, I know that it happens on a 15 minute sync, so it can happen when I'm asleep, it can happen when I'm at a trade show, it can, it'll be happening right now, which is is huge. Uh, absolutely, and I, I think you know one of the key points right here right now is going to be the uh, the use of AI in marketing, you know, the ability to have automated transcription of meetings, uh, the ability to to work out, you know, which keywords and phrases you should be using in your content and how they're going to have the, the greatest impact. Um, I was recently at the Inbound uh, uh, show over in Boston and marketing technology uh, and AI is starting to have a, a serious impact. And the theme that sort of came out there was it's going to have most impact where it can automate fairly mundane routine tasks. And I think that speaks to what you're indicating, Frankie, in that, you know, I, I'm aware that, you know, certainly it's taken us several years to get to the stage where we're starting to get reasonable value out of Salesforce. But it's because we've managed to automate a lot of those manual activities that uh, that we've done in the past. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so just uh, moving on now to a more of a sort of a bigger picture kind of question. So what's your biggest cha- challenge as a leader in a in an SME? What's, what's the big, one of the biggest one of the biggest issues that you come up against um, in running a business? Uh, shall I start on that one? Uh, I think for me, it's always been about getting the culture right, getting the team working right. Uh, you can have the world's greatest products, um, but if you've got a 
toxic culture within the business, it's going to blow up at some stage. So you, you have to have a, a goal in life. You have to know, you have to have the vision. You have to know where you're going, uh, how you're going to get there. Um, and then your job is to explain that to people and explain it in simple terms and uh, illustrate what success is going to look like, how they play a part in the team that's going to uh, enable you to get there. So uh, as I've said before, just try and keep it you know, simple, uh, show people that they've, uh, they've got a good deal out of life. The, the trust is a big factor, you know, which plays into that team working angle. Staying true to your vision. True to the vision and, uh, uh, you know, that Simon Sinek analogy of leaders eat last. Um, uh, you know, the days of the sort of Victorian mill owner are, are well gone. Uh, I think the role of a leader in, in modern businesses is a, is more of a facilitator. You know, as I come to work and I want people to tell me what I can do to make them more productive at, at their jobs. So, uh, yeah, pretty simple, I would say. Yeah, Alex? Yeah, I mean, I'd absolutely echo all of that. Um, I suppose on on a different side of things, this um, it's a fast changing industry right now. I think if you so I mentioned that chart with the sort of seven thousand tech stack tools on, and you've got all of that going on. You've got a very fast paced sector in terms of the, the different channels within it, the different approaches that you can take. So I think it's um, it's really that that pace of change and that the data that's available not getting kind of uh, completely bombarded and washed over by that data, but actually finding techniques and ways and methodologies to interpret that data to to do that as a, as a team of marketers as well, because it's not about doing that as a, I totally echo your thoughts, sorry, and it, it is about um, building a culture where you've got thinkers who can work with you to come up with the answers, basically, for, for yourselves and for, and for clients, really. So I think it's, um, yeah, that combination, pace of change and data really is the, uh, is the big thing. Excellent. Right. Okay. So last one now. If you could give yourself one piece of of marketing advice, uh, you know, way back when in in twenty years ago when you were just starting out with Azon, when you were just starting out with with Move Marketing, what would it be? I think um, from my perspective, I kind of sum it up as um, don't believe the hype, build the hype, um, and that's it. That, that's how I sum it up, really. Uh, if I could go back, I came out of a manufacturing industry background and uh, on the back of that, I saw that the internet could be really good for educating engineers, designers and scientists. So I thought I'll go into a totally new career, which is uh, building websites. Uh, I knew two tenths of nothing uh, about building websites. Uh, I was led by the nose by a team of developers, uh, spent a six-figure sum building a website that were, looked really pretty and was really interesting, but search engines were never going to find it. So uh, I wish I'd known about search engines back then and how significant they were. So uh, I'd have definitely saved a few hundred grand <laughs> by knowing that. Yeah. Well, that ties in superbly with next week's subject matter, where we'll be finding out how companies are adapting their paid search strategy in the current climate. Thank you both, gentlemen, for contributing today. Cheers, Frankie. Thank you. Great stuff. Don't forget to subscribe in the usual places or at azonetwork.com. We'll see you next week for a brand new edition of the Marketing Science Podcast with Matt Rafferty, Head of Paid Search here at Azo Network. Thanks for listening.